Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. Around 6.30 or 7 a.m. this morning, I get waken up by there's a helicopter. Now, living in Burbank, we do get a lot of helicopters at times, you know, if there's a traffic pileup. So Joanne puts on the news. She doesn't see it. It turns out this helicopter just ended a while ago. And thank God, because I'm recording my show today, and if there was a helicopter going around, it turns out that down the street, they're building the country's biggest Ikea. Because, you know, having a good size Ikea in Burbank wasn't enough, but they needed to build the biggest. So what happens is, I guess it's so big that they couldn't get the air conditioning unit in, so they had a helicopter. They gave a permit to work on a Saturday morning, which just cracks me up. So I basically was up early and heard a whole damn helicopter, and it was it was awful. So anyway, I'm over it now because I got a great guest. Uh, what makes him great is, besides being a great actor, he's a Philly guy. And you know, people lately, I've been getting people who live in Philly, like the Eric from the Hooters and David from the Hooters and other people from the Philadelphia area calling. And this gentleman lives in New Orleans via Philly, and he's been in, he's in LA a lot. My guest is Rob Steinberg. How you doing, Rob? Hey, Steve. How you doing? Good. So, uh, so I got to ask you now, now. What part of Philly are you from? Well, I grew up uh, in Lower Merion, went to Lower Merion High School. So uh, at least once, uh, at, at least 80 times, 80 or 90 times a year, I, you know, you get to hear Lower Merion High School's name called out uh, for the last 20 years when Kobe Bryant takes the court. I, I know, that always cracks me up. I remember uh, the, the Lower Merion, that, is that near Springfield? Yeah, it's about 20 minutes away. Because okay, my aunt lived in Springfield and she always got us something called butter cake. I don't know, this one bakery had it. It was so good. I've never found it anywhere else, but it was called Butter Cake. It was excellent. I have never heard of Butter Cake, but I'd be anxious to try it. It's good. So now now you, you, you're a kid in Philly and growing up. Now, what did you want to do when you were a kid? Did you always want to act? And I know you were in the music business. We're going to talk about that. But what, as a kid, what were your dreams? Did you want to be an athlete? I mean, what did you want to do? Well, I, mean, I think at some point everybody kind of wants to pitch for the Phillies, you know, for a minute or two when you're a kid. Um, but I never thought I was good enough to be a professional athlete. I always thought I'd want to be in the music business. My dad was in the music industry as an entertainment attorney in Philly, working with some of the great acts there, like um, uh, the Tramps, and worked with the producers, Tom Bell and Gamble and Huff, who made songs for the Spinners and the Stylistics and the OJs. And So I was immersed in that. I was 12 years old and watching that whole thing unfold. I was pretty sure... I wanted to go into the music business. And then in 1975, he started working with Bob Marley. You know, my love for music was deep. My knowledge was deep. And that's what I wanted to do. So now, now you want to do that. So do you decide to follow? Because I know you went to Tulane. Was that, was that before you were in the music business? When, that, how did you end up going to Tulane? And what, were you, what was your major when you went there? Well, I said to my parents, I want to go to college in California. Because I just felt like this whole California thing calling me in the in the mid-70s, and um, they said, it's too far, and I said, well, what's the furthest away I could get that isn't too far, and um, Tulane had a good school, Emory had a good school, I got into both, I went and looked at both, and by the time I landed in New Orleans, five minutes later, I knew this is where I was going to be, this was always a magical place, and unlike any other city in the, in the world, I would say. It's weird, you know, because I'm thinking, you know, I grew up in Cherry Hill, and, you know, people went to all different schools. You didn't hear a lot of people from Philly going to New Orleans. There were probably three people from my high school class that went to Tulane that year. So I think that was that seemed like a lot because there were three from my high school. And Tulane tends to get a lot of 
people from the Northeast, from Chicago, and from Florida. Um, it's not typically seen as a Southern school because New Orleans doesn't see itself as a Southern city. Now, what was your major when you went there? Well, they, they didn't they didn't have a major for me uh, at the time, so I created one, um, and they let me graduate with a communications major, and I, I created a communications program here. So when you got out, what was your goal? What were you what was what were you going to set the fire with? I mean, what was your sitting there? You know, you got out. You, you know, I don't I don't think you had the acting bug yet. What what did you foray into? I know you went straight into the record business. Well, I came back to Philly and. Um, I worked for a local Philadelphia label called WMOT Records, uh, which produced, as they their claim to fame is the first hip hop record, um, or the first rap record, which was uh, Double Dutch Bus. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that double. Yeah. I, I remember that song. Right. Oh god. And um, <laughs> so I worked for that label for a little bit, and then you know went to New York to try to find work there. I wanted to be the guy who was discovering talent, who was going to go out and find the next great band. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, but I, I got to New York, and there was a, there was a recession going on in the music business, and they were firing people who had a lot of tenure and a long time working. Um, and so there was nothing really for me there. Um, but I stuck around, and I kept knocking on doors. And I met, like, all these record company presidents through my dad over the years. So at least I could get meetings, but I couldn't get work. And they're like, uh, well, there's a, you know, I guess you could work changing water bottles, you know, until we find something. I'm like, okay. They're like, nah, I can't let... David's son changed water bottles. So there was no work. Um, and it took me about eight months of really hitting the pavement hard, typing letters on a typewriter and using whiteout to fix all the mistakes. And um, eventually I wound up working for Lieber Krebs Management in New York and was uh, assigned the task of sort of running the Scorpions after uh, from 84 to 87. And um, did a lot of their uh, tour promotion, a lot of their uh, sort of management detail, and helped to, I think, escalate them at, to a higher level of visibility and to a greater level of success. And that was not what I wanted to do. I did not want to go on tour and work in management with heavy metal bands, but it was fun, and it was my 20s. And so you're doing that. And, you know, it's just not what you want to do. But as you said, yeah, you're you're touring with a heavy metal band. I mean, I can imagine what went on because I know some musicians who have been in heavy metal bands. And I believe me, I know <laughs> it's a very yeah, hedonistic just, just lifestyle. Picture, <laughs> right. Just picture a room. It's 1984. <laughs> there is um, maybe 20 or 30 really nasty, slutty chicks with the big hair. You remember? Yeah. Like, I think, I think <laughs> Cherry Hill still has that, I think. Oh God, Cherry Hill! There used to there used to be a bar called the Galaxy, and uh, their first their first house band was Bon Jovi. Then it was Cinderella. Then it was Britney Fox, and that's all they had when you went in there. The girls like that, right? So, well, by John, actually, John Bon Jovi opened up for the Scorpions on their first on on John's first tour. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it, it was crazy. Just you know, you picture these people; they're all sort of willing to do anything to meet the band. Um, and, you know, I was not somebody who, who needed to partake necessarily in that kind of exchange. I wanted someone who liked me for me. Right. But quickly I, I grew tired of that and went, uh, went, went deep into the rock and roll world. And it was fun for a while and we, we did very well. And, you know, I could joke about it and laugh about it. You know, I met a lot of great people, had a lot of crazy times, a lot of stories I can't tell on the radio. But um, 
you know, that was definitely an excellent part, a really excellent part of my life. And I'm still, I'm still friends with the Scorpions today. As a matter of fact, uh, we just got back from uh, Las Vegas. They played a week out at the Joint at the Hard Rock, and we went and saw a couple of shows there and hung out with them for a couple of days. Oh, that's cool. I saw your pictures. You have, is that your wife or your girlfriend? That's my girlfriend. Very beautiful. Very beautiful. She's lovely. Us, She's us, us East Coast, but my girlfriend's very beautiful. Us East Coast guys, you know, we do we do well. I don't know what we it do. is. We do well with the women. I mean, we don't. We. I mean, you're much better looking than me, but we still do. We still do. <laughs> we still do well with the women. And uh, so, okay, so so you're doing the music, and so now, how did you then get into acting? Okay, so there was a big transition. 1986, I was hit by a drunk driver. They crossed the double yellow line in New York, hit me head on. And I, I spent the next year and a half to two years uh, in and out of surgeries, on crutches, doing rehab, having uh, reconstruction surgeries on my leg uh, to get to the point where I could walk again. And of course, there's a lot of reflective time during all the healing and during all of the work because you pretty much say, hey, I'm putting work on hold because my focus is to get myself back to healing again. So during that time, I, I kind of thought, you know what, I think I'm done with the music business. I mean, this is a perfect time to make a change or to do something different. Um, you know, I just had a near-death experience. Um, who knows? I didn't even know what I wanted to do. I, I always thought that I was reasonably entertaining and amusing, and I could do characters and different voices. And that was always something that I could do, but it was never something that like, I ever thought I'd make a living out of. Um, and still today, not sure that was the best idea. But nonetheless, at that moment in time, uh, I thought, why not give this a shot? Why not try to see if I can be an actor. Why not move out to L.A., put the music business behind me for now? I mean, I could always come back to it if it didn't work out, but really just sort of take a chance and go out and, uh, and see, if I, uh, see if I could make it work as an actor. Uh, and, you know, my mom, of course, blames the head injury from the car accident on that decision, but I did it. And so after um, making that decision, I went back and did one more project with the Scorpions, uh, I did the Monsters of Rock tour in 88, which was uh, Van Halen, Scorpions, Metallica kind of broke out from that tour, and Dawkins was on it. And after about two months on that tour, I'm like, yeah, that's it, I'm done. So uh, late, late in 89, I moved out to Los Angeles and you know, kind of got my first role in Die Hard 2 and was off to the races. How, I mean, when you came out, how did you start up in the business? Because one, you were older for starting in the business. Yeah, and, I was 30. And you weren't, I mean, you really didn't have any training. So what What was your, you know, how did you end up getting the, the role in Die Hard? I mean, did you sit there, did you just start pounding the pavement to get contacts, to get agents? Or because you knew how to put a tour together and stuff like that, you probably had an inner, you know, you probably have a, you had a, advantage on other people who just don't know how to get an agent or anything like that what when you moved out here what were your first steps what did you do well first of all i didn't start out as a as a kid actor who was uh, i don't want to say desperate and needy but to some degree if all you do is act usually from the time you're a child and into your uh 20s um at that point your life becomes one of needing approval needing affirmation needing confirmation and I, I had that in my previous job, and I, and I felt good about myself and my work at that time. So I wasn't coming from a place where, like, oh, my God, I need this. I need you to make this happen for me. I need you. Um, I was coming from a, from a business perspective where I was representing talent, and now I was just taking that knowledge that I had and sort of plugging it into myself. So um, I found you know, who the best teachers were. I went and I studied. Um, I took some of these casting workshops. 
and uh, uh, everyone I met, I kept an, I kept a note file on, you know, and I followed up with calls and uh, I think it was before emails in 1990. People weren't doing that yet, but um, I would, you know, send off postcards or, or or check in with people, and even at that time. Um, once I sort of got the foothold and thought, okay, I've got some chops at least. I know I can at least put together some acting chops for this scene. I started knocking on doors. And you could drive on studio lots at the time and tell them you were making a delivery. If, you know, you had a decent car and looked professional. Um, and so I was able to do that. And it was easier to be able to walk into someone's office and just hand them a picture and tell them... Um, Hey, you know what? I used to manage heavy metal bands in the 80s. I got into a near-death car accident. After I came through that, after a couple years of rehabilitation, I decided I wanted to move out here and be an actor. So I'm here for that. I'd love a shot. You know, and that in 20 seconds was my story, and I was able to market that and get a few people to pay attention. But ultimately, you know, when it comes down to it, you have to be able to be good enough to win the part. So um, the key is the opportunities to get there. And then being able to close the deal is, is the next step. Now, how excited were you when you got the audition for Die Hard 2? Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, Die Hard 1 was a hit. Bruce Willis is the, a monster talent and a South Jersey guy, you know. Yeah. And uh, what was that like? I mean, did, did your agent say, okay, you got an audition for Die Hard? Or do you have any idea? Because I think, you know, anytime you audition for something big like that, you have to be a little uh, nervous just for the fact that, it's freaking diehard. You know, it's it's not like some student film. I mean, how how that audition go for you? Were you were you nervous and it was well, a long process or I didn't have an agent at the time, so I took one of those casting workshops and the casting director, Jackie Birch, who was running the workshop, uh, you know, gave out scenes for everyone to read. You know. So I'm reading something I think from Ford Fairlane and I'm miming a lot of things and she's laughing and she stops and she goes, You don't you don't you don't need to mime that at all and I do something else that was wrong, and you know she and her assistant were were laughing. So I I, I knew at least I was getting uh, getting to be remembered at that moment. I call up her office. Uh, oh, the next day the guy who ran the workshop calls me and says, you know, Jackie was really um, wanted to let you know that she was she thought you were very funny and very good, and she didn't want you to feel insulted that she was laughing. So I call up their office, and their and her associate gets on the phone, and I say, hey, it's Rob Steinberg from the workshop last night. I just want to let you know I'm fine. I'm not upset about anything. And she said, okay, hang on a second. And she yells, hey, Jackie, I got Rob Steinberg on the phone, and he's got his head in the oven. You know, pretending like I was so upset right. and distraught that I was going to kill myself. <laughs> so now Jackie picks up the phone, and instantly I now have a little relationship here, you know, which is not usually the case for a lot of actors starting out. But uh, we had a little dialogue, and then they called me a few weeks later and said, I I'd like you to come in for a callback for Die Hard 2. And I said, um, oh, I can't do that. And they said, why? I said, because I didn't have an initial call. I, I mean, I didn't know you could go right into a callback without having been seen first. So I thought it was a mistake. And they said, no, you'll be fine. And the scene that I was in, which is halfway through the film, I play the assistant to Bill Atherton, the kind of you know jerk reporter who's in the first two. Um, he comes to the back of the plane and he taps me on the shoulder. I'm in a, I'm in a seat with my eyes closed sleeping. With headphones in my ears. Um, so I got to start that scene in the audition with my eyes closed, you know, like I was asleep. And that was a great way to start a scene. It really allowed it to, you know, sort of mute to relax. And so I wasn't nervous when I did it. It just felt very simple and very easy. And 
day later, Jackie calls and says, you've got the part. And yes, you know, at that moment, that's a huge thing. Because most of the time when you audition for, for TV shows that are not known or movies that haven't come out yet, you know, you might see a big star name in it, but you never know how successful the, it will be or if it will be seen or if it'll be a flop or whatever. But you knew that the Die Hard franchise was, was huge and that it was going to be successful and that um, it was going to be something really, really magical. So when I got that call, yeah, I was sitting in my car and I uh, flipped on the radio and boom, James Brown, I feel good, comes on. And I felt good. So, so now you get this role and you get the shooter. So now you got it. Now it's, I mean, it's probably, it's a validation for, for your career choice because, you know, you're in a major movie. So after you shoot it, where do you go from there? I mean, do you sit there and you go, okay, I have this under my belt, but I want to get more? Or did, did you get any heat from that? Like the people say, okay, you know, he was in this. And did you get, did it enable you to get any easier casting calls than, let's say, someone who didn't? And did you get an agent from that role? Yeah. Well, I, I did wind up, uh, par- I mean, I wound up getting a couple other parts on my own, and then I did parlay that into getting some representation. But, you know, in the beginning of your career, it's always a little tough. And if you're, if you don't have a lot of experience or a big, I mean, look, at the beginning, I had, I, I made up my resume. I, I created fictitious TV shows, fictitious movies, and everything, because I didn't have a resume. I hadn't done any acting other than, like, uh, guys and dolls at summer camp, you know, um, that was it for me. So I said to myself, every time I get a job, I'm going to take uh, one of these fake things off the resume. Uh, so I, once I was able to get uh, mostly real things on the resume, um, I then was able to get some representation. And, and that helped. And it, it does help to have some big titles on your resume. You know, people see a couple of big films and they think, okay, well, he can work under pressure. He can work on a big set. He's worked with some big stars. He's not too green to put out there. And you worked um, on Jake and the Fat Man. I'm sorry, with who? You worked on Jake and the Fat Man. <laughs> yeah, Jake and the Fat Man, uh, Fat Man, Diagnosis Murder, and uh, Matlock. So yeah. you were getting the parts. Now, now, it seems like you were getting cast for a lawyer a lot. Yes, I was. I was. And, uh, you know, so... My mother wanted me to be a lawyer uh, when I was, you know, graduated from Tulane. And i like, nah, I don't want to do that. So now I've got, like, look, I've tried cases against uh, Kurt Russell. I've tried <laughs> Kurt cases against Andy Griffith. You think I could do that if I, if I went to law school and became a lawyer? Exactly. So, so now you're kicking around. Now, then you end up on a, on a soap for a bunch of episodes. Yeah. Um, on the Bold and the Beautiful, I, I saved Macy from cancer. Yeah. Now, I've heard... And I've had, you know, Michael Damien was on a few weeks ago who was on Young and the Wrestles for all those years. And I've had other soap people. They say, man, for being an actor, that's a, that's a tough job because you gotta, you got to be on, like, every day got to learn shit. The first thing you got to say to yourself is, I have a steady job. And if you have a steady job, you have to be thankful no matter how tough it is. You know, I think that's the key because there, there are so many actors out there and so few with steady work. So you get the chance to be on a, a soap opera, even if it's hard, no matter what, it, it's, it's steady, and you're going to the same place every day, and you, you tend to start around the same time and leave around the same time. And that makes it a little bit easier, for sure. But what you got is a ton of dialogue, usually every day, two or three scenes, and um, 
you have to know them. So you're you're always studying your your lines. You're always doing what you can to memorize your lines. And um, soap opera work, they say, is great training. It's like it's like a great class because if you can do that in that environment where things move very fast, where you don't have a lot of time to, to, to do things over again, where you can't step in somebody else's light, and where the director is often in the booth above and not down on the floor with you. Once you do all that, you get terrific training for being able to go on, and then other things become easier if you can if you can handle all that. So you do that, and it goes. You're in a bunch of episodes, and that's it's, it's a study work. Now, during this time when you were getting these auditions and getting these parts, are you still studying? Are you still taking classes, or are you learning basically from your on-set experiences? No, I'm still taking classes at this time. I, I, I took classes with the Groundlings, with Second City. I studied with Howard Fine. I took cold reading workshops with Margie Haver. I did uh, Meisner techniques with uh, Janet Alhante. You know, I, I continue to take classes and and study. You know, probably for ten years. Now, is it is it frustrating? I mean, because you're getting booked, but you're you're not on a series, and so you have to go out a lot. Does that as an actor that must get very frustrating because you know you have the talent because if you didn't have the talent, you wouldn't have any IMDb credits. I always say, I look at people's IMDb and you see the shows and, and you know people are talented when you see shows you've heard of. Not like your original resume you made the shit up, you know. Right. I, always, I always laugh when I look like, you know, background. You know, I, I do background occasionally. My girlfriend's a regular on a show doing background and she loves it, but she doesn't want to act, but she would never put it on her resume. I've looked at shows because that's how I get guests. Like I'll see a TV show, someone looks familiar, I'll go to IMDb and you flip down you're like, Okay, this person played three different things on one series. That's not good, you know. But for you, you're get you're having these these you're getting you're getting booked. But how are you keeping? You know, how is it keeping with the grind? Was it getting frustrating ever because you didn't get a series, but you are a working actor? I mean, does it? What were you getting fed up or what? What happened? Well, first of all, I did three different parts on Young and the Restless. Well, no, they can do that now. But, over the course of 25 years. Yeah, but no, this is like they do it in one season. Like they'll put, yeah. they'll put Looky right. Lou, Mom, and this. I'm like, no, you're not, you're not right. three different people. It's not like NYPD Boo back in the day where you could do, you know, two a different role four years apart. Right. Well, your, your question about frustrating is it was frustrating. It still is frustrating. Um and the whole process itself is, uh, I mean, it's lunacy to, to say this is what you want to do because you will be disappointed for most of your life, right? Like, uh, if, if I get a job a month, that's an amazing thing. If I work a day or two a month, that's incredible. And that means I'm auditioning maybe three or four times a week and I'm doing what I think right now is my best work. And I'm getting close, but I'm not getting the work. So it was frustrating. It is frustrating, and I'm sure in the future it will be frustrating too. So you have there has to be, there has to be an aspect of this that you really love. There has to be something about it that really calls to you. Um, you know, uh, I don't know that I was ever fully in love with the craft of acting. Um, I, I know that I've loved watching movies. I've loved being entertained. I've loved great performances. I can appreciate. When someone has really done their homework and researched a character and brings that to the screen, I think that's the stuff that I've loved just as a fan. And then the opportunity to get into it, as I said, likely came out of that head injury. So I don't, I don't know why I'm still doing it, to tell you the truth. But back then, it was even harder. You know, it was, um, 
it was tough. And, and, you know, I never got as many auditions as I wanted. I never got cast as much as I wanted. But when you did get a job, it was exciting. And it was very, very thrilling to be able to go on set and say, hey, today I got a scene. I'm working with Andy Griffith. Right. Or I got a scene today. I'm working with Kurt Russell. Or, you know, all of those things were, were, were very exciting. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the night before I went in to do my first, first of a few days on the uh, Matlock show, I was so nervous because I had this one very, very long, difficult line. Let's see if I can remember. It was, um, uh, Your Honor, uh, uh, objection, Your Honor, Mr. Something like this whole thing is swung, swung into gross speculation and unsupported innuendo. And it was like three other big words like that. And I just had this nightmare where I was standing there and I couldn't put the words together. I couldn't get it together. So there was frustration going into it, but there's also excitement because you know when you're on set, you know, you're going to deliver and you're going to hopefully be able to create something good. Most of the time, truth is, my character is serving the leads or the secondary characters. And I'm a, I'm a secondary or tertiary character often in uh, most of the projects I've done. So what I have to do is be like a, a really good support man. I have to be the guy that like, you know, uh, I have to be the guy who can, you know, like a Chris Paul who can get the assist. You know, right. I don't have to worry about scoring. Now, during when you know when there was slower times, were you, I mean, how were you surviving? Were you working another job? I mean, it's like you know, I mean, you know, on your resume, there's a few years that it seemed a little slow. How do you, first of all, how do you keep the focus? Because, it, as I said, it must get frustrating. And what are you doing to to live? Well, there were definitely years where things got slow, where I literally stopped and I didn't. I don't think I had a theatrical audition at some point for five or six years. Um, I was doing commercial auditions, so I did some commercials, and I was doing voiceovers. So that stuff doesn't sort of wind up on IMDb, and you don't really get a chance to see much of that. Um, there were times where, like, um, I was doing some, gosh, I, I call it legal work, but I'm not a lawyer, but I played one on TV. So there were friends of mine that would get into these uh, small car accidents. Somebody would hit them, and, um, you know, maybe they hurt themselves or... Uh, minor, but, but they didn't need a big attorney and they were just going to sort of let the whole thing go. So I was like, look, I'll come in. We'll get your pair, your car repaired perfectly and we'll get you some compensation for the uh, difficulty that you've been through. So I acted as their business manager and I um, helped some people do that. I also got involved in some real estate and bought a property and sold it in LA at the right time. And so, you know, those, you, you have to hustle and find things to do. Uh, and find ways to do them um, when the work is slowed. And still, uh, in New Orleans, where I live now, um, I also own a couple of VRBO, Airbnb rental properties. So that is really my business. And the acting is, I, I call it a, a, a glorious hobby at this point. Well, no, how did you end up in New Orleans? I mean, I know, was it just something, because I noticed, you know, for a while, you know, North Carolina was a hotbed. And then Atlanta was a hotbed. And then they started shooting a lot of stuff in New Orleans. How did you end up in New Orleans? I mean, what was, you know, you're in LA, you're hustling, you're getting work, you know, and it's like, did you sit, I mean, what, what year did you move there? And, and what, what was the, the factors that made you decide to move back? Because you did know the area because you went to college there. So it's not like you're moving to like, hey, I'm going to go to Des Moines, you know, and you're going to a place that is at least hip. How did you end up making that move? And when did you do it? 
of all, I love New Orleans from the minute I got here, and I came back every year for the Jazz and Heritage Festival. So I had I had contacts and friends here um, since since I landed here in seventy seven seventy eight, and by two thousand, I really wasn't working very much. Uh, in film or TV in LA, things had started to slow down a lot for me. Um, and I kept thinking, I have to make a move. I have to do something different. And um, I considered and flirting with the idea of moving to New Orleans. And, it, and it, one of those things that takes probably four or five years before you can do it. Because the fear, a lot of times, when you have a favorite place in the world, is that um, if you're not thrilled and happy with your life, wherever you go, there you are. So it doesn't matter if you're in your favorite place in the world. If you're not happy with what's going on in your life, you're likely not to be happy wherever you are. So I had to really analyze that and look at it and say, you know, it's just time for a change. If I don't get out of Los Angeles, I won't know if I can do something else. I won't know what other opportunities there are. And I didn't move to New Orleans to get into the film industry. As a matter of fact, um, I really got out of New out of Los Angeles thinking I would not go back and do anything in the film industry. I really didn't know what I would do. I kind of thought that I would figure it out because New Orleans was always a place where I felt like there was a possibility for a, a, a free creative expression. I mean, if you live in a city where everybody has a costume closet, right. where there's at least 30 <laughs> days a year where you can put on an outfit and go out and nobody would say anything to you like, that's a little weird. You're a grown person, you know, dressed as a canary. You know, there's, this is a city that celebrates life and knows how to live it to its fullest. And people don't really judge anybody else for anything outrageous or outlandish. You don't have to be on your best behavior. It's not like L.A. sometimes where you can't jump up and down and go, woo, and clap your hands when a band's playing because somebody next to you might think, oh, that's a little awkward behavior for somebody in his position. Right. It's so funny you say that. It's funny. I've never been in New Orleans. When me and my, my girlfriend, Joanne, she's also a big Eagles fan, we were so bummed because two years ago we went to Arizona to watch the Eagles play. And then when the Eagles finally, I think they played New Orleans last year, but they play them in Philly. And we're like... God, you know, it's like, and then, like, their away games were like Buffalo. Like, yeah, we're not going to go to Buffalo. You know what I mean? But it right. just, it just, because, yeah, everyone says New Orleans just, just a cool, cool area. Well, I, I, it's, it's funny you mention that because I was at that game, like, it's probably three years ago when the Eagles came down here and played in, in the Superdome. Okay. And I'm a huge Eagles fan my whole life. Uh, I am also a huge Saints fan because what the Saints did for this city after Katrina. Uh, within five years of coming back from a place where they didn't even have a place to play to winning um, to winning the Super Bowl and doing it in such a, an amazing way, um, the, much of the city is in love with the Saints, as, as, is, as are, I would say, cities that have great sports teams, great franchises, and maybe not a lot of other entertainment-oriented things going on. You know, L.A., I guess you'll all get back behind the Rams again. I know everybody's excited about... No, nah, I'm, I'm an Eagles fan. I don't, I'm not watching the Rams. I don't, I don't give a crap. Right, okay. Well, but I became a Saints fan because all my friends here are Saints fans. And watching Saints games and going to Saints games is is an event. And so I went to the Eagles-Saints game. And people are like, who are you rooting? Because I'm sitting, I'm sitting, like, if you ever watch uh, a New Orleans Saints game, you see the guys dressed up as the Popes, you yeah, know? Yeah. And then the, and the guy with the giant whistle on his head, right? These are all my friends. So this is who I sit with. <laughs> at the game and they're just crazy fans and I was thinking and I was wearing I think I was wearing my Eagles jersey no I was wearing my Saints jersey and my Eagles hat and I was contemplating doing like a split jersey split hat thing right 
Because I wanted to really, I really believe that my allegiance was to both. Well, I got to tell know? you, I got to interrupt you real quick and tell you this: of you know, being a diehard Eagles fan, actually, the Saints are one of those teams that. If you can adopt them as a second team. Like, Eagles fans wouldn't get mad because you're right. What they did for the city, and they came from being the most awful team. So if you're going to like two teams, you're, you're, you're on the right path. Because that, that's like, they can be like, the Saints can be your stepbrother. I don't think yeah, Philadelphia Panthers, right. if you said, oh, I like the Cowboys, Philadelphia Panthers would be like, screw you. But if you right. said, I like the Saints, you're like, you know what? That's okay. They, they felt the pain we have. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if you say you're an Eagles fan and a Cowboys fan, you might as well say you're schizophrenic. Right. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. <laughs> so um, so I, I went to the game, and the Saints began to kick the Eagles' ass. They were, like, blowing them out. And I was miserable. I was really unhappy. I was hoping for a really close game that might end in some sort of field goal or, you know, both quarterbacks throwing touchdowns at the end of the game to tie it up, and then it goes... Like, that's what I was hoping for, that I would be satisfied, which we got last year in Philadelphia when the Saints came and played Philly in Philly during the playoff game. I don't know if it was two two seasons ago uh, when Nick Foles was quarterback, and Drew Brees mounted a, uh, a, a uh, end-of-the-fourth-quarter score, and then Foles did it, and the game was tied. I think it ended in a field goal. So... Uh, that's what I got then, but boy, I knew where my allegiance was when I left the game in the fourth quarter because I couldn't take the abuse anymore. That makes sense. So now, so now you're digging New Orleans now, and you said you didn't go down to act. Now, how did you fall back into acting then? Well, when I got down here, I knew that there was at least a lot of film production going on. People were talking about, it. oh, you're, did you move here because of the acting and all the work? And I'm like, no, I just moved here. They're like, well, there's a lot of movies shooting here and more and more coming. So I went and called up and contacted a few of the local agents in town, and I met with them all, and they all said, I want to work with you. And that was different than in L.A. where everybody said, I don't want to work with you. Um, and it was quickly that I sort of landed with, with a, an agent out of, um, out of northern Louisiana, and uh, I began to get a lot of auditions, and I got work relatively quickly. And it, it all seemed to start to click. Not that I was a big, people say, oh, it's because you're a big fish in a small pond. No, I'm not. I'm like a medium to small fish in a medium to small pond. You know, okay. it's not It's not that dramatic that, oh, well, people have to have Rob Steinberg and I'm booking every job. Because there's a lot of fine actors in the city. People who've studied their whole lives, people who've worked all the time. Uh, a good friend of mine, James Dumont. You who's been, who's been on the show and actually other one, ones, uh, Vanessa Cloak has been on my show. Yep. And, uh, um, um, oh, God, Dana Gurrier. Yep. Yeah, so there, there was some good talent out there. So you started getting work, so that must have been really good because when you looked at it, you know, as you said, you weren't sure you were going to still be into acting as much, but then you start getting work, so it must be sitting there once again. You must be going, God, I made the right move. Right, and then the city became so busy, the tax credits were bringing in huge productions, you know, billion dollars, you know, movies that have grossed billions of dollars, the Twilight series, um, it, 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 Battleship. I mean, just huge movies would come into the state and they would work on sound stages and they would shoot a lot of their interiors and then they'd have to go to locations to shoot some of their exteriors. Um, but there was a lot of work going on here. And even in Atlanta and Florida and North Carolina, I was being flown to work on Army Wives and to work on uh, CBS's show called... Um, Zoo and dropped it. Diva things. Some things worked here. Some things were a drive for a few hours, and some things were a flight for an hour. But they know, were all auditioning down there, right? 
Yeah, and auditioning has all become self-taping, pretty much. So you could go to somebody's office and do an initial read, and then they put you on tape, and if the producers want to see you, or the director wants to see you, come in for a callback. But I found it was just easy enough to sort of be in my home and set up my camera and have somebody come read with me and tape it and edit it and send it off myself, and that that was a, a good way to, to also get hired and be seen. Now, what was it like when you actually had, did have to go to an audition, going into the room, because there's probably not as many actors, and what I've learned out here is, you know, because you've been around for a while, and a lot of you, you would run, you guys run into each other. You know, I always say there's like, you know, an audition room, you're going to see David Starzik and Spencer Garrett and, you know, Bruce Nozick, Novick, those guys all going in. So what was it like going into like a whole new, when you would actually go and audition, where people like, oh, there's an L.A. guy. Did you sort of get like that new guy in town? Because some of these actors are probably, as you said, they're very well trained, but they're New Orleans guys. Well, uh, you know, there's a lot of New Orleans guys, but there's also a lot of guys from Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia or whatever. Um, and the truth is, it was very different. In L.A., you walk into a room and you see a bunch of people who you recognize. And people aren't really, you know, some people really aren't talking to each other. There's not a great camaraderie. I mean, a lot of times, especially when I was younger, in my mid-30s, you know, people would sort of avoid eye contact, even if they knew you, because they had to focus on the part, and they knew they wanted it, and they didn't want you to get it. So I always felt that there was a lot more rivalry going on in Los Angeles. In New Orleans, I felt nothing but support. I felt like, oh, this is my buddy so-and-so. Oh, you know, you're going up for the same role. Say, hey, yeah, we're for the same thing. Um, and there was no competition uh, noted. There was no attitude. Everybody was very supportive, and people were very friendly, you know, and... and that was, I found, very remarkable because we all said, hey, you know what? To some degree, we're in a small to medium-sized pond, and we're all going to be treading water. Wouldn't it be nice if we could all do it together and support each other? So you're, you're acting. You know, you're out there. Now, how does 12 Years a Slave come up? Because, and did you know that you were about to be taking place in a Oscar nominated? Did it win the Oscar? Won the Golden Globe and the Oscar. So, I mean, did you, I mean, how did that come up? And, and then looking back as an actor, you must sit there and go, holy crap. You know, I'm in a movie that won the Oscar. How did that audition come about? And was it, did someone know you? Did you have to do it on tape? Did they do it out of New Orleans? How did that whole process start? Well, they shot the movie in New Orleans, Brad Pitt's company. Um, and they had done a couple of other films down here and a couple since then, too. Big Short was also shot down here, too. Um, directed by uh, Adam McKay. From Philly. Temple. Philly, you know, Philly I used, guy. I used to hang out with him at the comedy clubs. He's a Temple guy. He went to Temple. Oh my gosh, that's right. I did. I did know that. So New. Okay, so Twelve Years a Slave is going to shoot in New Orleans. It is also a lower budget movie, meaning they're going to make the movie for like whatever you know, less than thirty million dollars, less than twenty million dollars with a big cast like that. So that's considered low budget these days, right? Because big budget movies are one hundred and fifty to two hundred million dollars. Um, so there's going to be certain parts that are cast in New Orleans and certain parts that are cast outside. Uh, at this point in time, when I get the first call to come in for the audition, um, I don't. I, I I didn't do all of my homework. I didn't know who was in the movie, and I didn't know fully what it was. I mean, I, I did. I knew what it was about. I, I had taken a look at the book uh, online, but I didn't really read it, and I had a sense of what this was about, and I knew there were some big people involved, and that's all I knew. So. I did my work and figured who the character was and just went in and they put it on tape. And then I got a call saying uh, the director, Steve 
would like you to come in for a callback. So now I, go, I really go to work. I, now I start doing the research. Uh, what else has Steve McQueen done? And I watch his films to see his technique and to see what his, you know, sort of notes are on a film. And then um, I saw that everybody was signing on to this project. Well, like Benedict Cumberbatch and, uh, you know, uh, Paul Dano and Michael Fassbender and uh, Alfre Woodard. All of a sudden people were, were just saying, I want to be part of this movie. And so big names were coming on and taking relatively low salaries to be part of something special. And then you look at it and you go, okay, Brad Pitt, all these people doing this amazing story that no one's heard about. This is the kind of movie, you know, that if all the elements fall together, we could be there. We could be in award season somewhere as a contender. But there's so many elements that have to line up, so many ducks that have to show up in a row. And it's very hard to think in the beginning that you're going to wind up in contention for, you know, the biggest award in Hollywood. Um, but you believe that if everybody does their work and it all falls together right, this is the kind of story and the kind of film that could wind up there. So, yes, in the beginning, you had a sense of it. Um, and the casting director who knew me and had hired me for other things brought me in as she would bring in, you know, so many people in my age range to read these kind of character parts. Now, now, were you a little bit, I, I could say nervous when, you know, you get the call back, but then you hear people are starting to attach themselves to it and names are attached themselves. Were you thinking at any time, well, wait a second, man, I just might, even though they like me, I might just get bumped because, you know, such and such comes in. Did that go through your mind at all? Well, what was, well, what, I, let's tell your listeners. So um, I play um, Cephas Parker, the store owner from New York in the beginning of the movie. That's, that's the, um, that's Solomon Northup's friend. Him and his wife come into my store. We, we you know, the character, they, they, they know each other. Uh, there's a great tolerance and uh, appreciation and friendship there. It's it's not awkward and it's not stilted. And at the end of the movie, it's my character, Mr. Parker, who comes down to the plantation and frees him and takes him off of the plantation and brings him back to his family. So I'm at the I'm in the oh, the way the script was written. I'm in the first two pages and I'm in the last few pages, right? So you got to figure. Like I, like, I don't see the script. I just see the f page one, two, three, four, and page 107, right. 8, 9, 10, right? Like, that's all they give me. They're not giving me the middle stuff. So I'm thinking, this has to be important, A, because these are the f first pages and the last pages. And um, then when you read the character, you think, okay, it's a very small scene in the beginning. If they had given that character... Uh, to a name or somebody you recognized and that was all you saw of them in the beginning of the movie and it was just this little thing and they were gone you'd be like oh they're coming back at the end okay you would think that. i think that you would think that and so it sort of had to go to somebody who wasn't that recognizable so what's it like on this set i mean you know you're sitting there you know it's this i mean there's an abundance of talent and there's talent in other projects, but something like this, that it's had, and plus, I mean, how was the feel of the set? Was it, was it different? I mean, you know, than just like, I know, cause you do a lot of TV and movies are completely different, but what was it like shooting? I mean, what was it? Was it just, were you fascinated? Were you excited? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're, first of all, you are excited to 
to be doing something like this. And the van brings you to the set, which is a uh, legitimate old plantation in New Orleans. And as you're pulling up in the van, it lets you off on this sort of like rocky dirt road. Um, you see the plantation. You see men dressed in plantation clothing and women with long gowns. And then you look and you see a shack. And then you see men dressed as and women dressed as slaves, many of whom are extras. And they're just sitting around trying to keep themselves cool in the 100-degree summer heat. And then there's a field, and there's, you know, men dressed in slave attire working in the field. And, uh, you know, wranglers and ranchers on horses uh, with whips in their hands. And you see this just as you pull up, and, and there's a pain that goes through your heart. You, you realize that you're in the presence of something that in some ways is like, uh, you know, the concentration camps were for the Jews. You know, these were not places where these men and women volunteered to come. They were stolen and they were uh, beaten and they were not allowed to learn or read or write. And uh, you feel you feel like a heaviness and a sadness. And, and that then transforms you into wanting to do your best work into wanting to be as truthful and honest in telling the story as possible. And from the grips and the PAs, you know, up to the lead actor and everybody in between, you, everybody's had the sense that they were working on something uh, that, that was very important and, and really important to tell the story correctly. And by giving it your best and really being dedicated, you're hoping that you can do that. Now, for you, for the shooting, because you were in the beginning at the end, did you shoot them at the same time, or did you do? The, did you have to come back, or how was your schedule? Well, I, I shot the, of course, the end scene where I'm saving him, I take him off the plantation. That was the first thing we shot, and then I think the second thing we shot was when I bring him back to his family, um, and then the last thing we shot was the early scene, which was the store in uh, the, the store in Saratoga Springs, New York. What was really great was that for uh, three or four days, they closed down one of the streets in the French Quarter, one of the oldest-looking streets with the least amount of advertising on it, and they put dirt on the road, and they transformed it into that street in Saratoga Springs, New York, in 1941. Uh, and so uh, there was a big sign out there that said Parker's Store. Uh, they had built this little store for my character um, in this alleyway between these two you know, 200-year-old brick buildings. Now, you get done, you're acting on it. You don't know what else is going on with the movie because, as you say, you only had those pages of your script. What's it like when the premiere comes out and you finally get to see it and you can actually... I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you were sort of in the dark as to how the movie's going to go. You know you're in the beginning, you know you're in the end, but you you don't know what's in the middle. What, what, what was it like when you went? Where was the premiere and when you went? What was it like to sit there and sit down and see this Oscar-winning movie for the first time that you're part of? Well, the first time I saw it was in New York City at the uh, New York Film Festival. Um, it had just won... It had been, like there's a process with a lot of really good movies, and when the movies, when people think a movie is going to be sort of award worthy or be part of award consideration discussion, then uh, sometimes they will sneak it at the Telluride Film Festival. Like they don't announce it, but they sort of sneak it in there. 
So this movie, 12 Years a Slave, got stuck into Telluride and got tremendous response. And that was probably in August. So that's like the first sign that things are off to the right track. Now, we know we're going and we're premiering in the Toronto Film Festival. And the Toronto Film Festival, to some degree, has picked like seven of the last ten Oscar winners by voting it its number one film of the festival. So we go and we do very well in Toronto. Now, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm reading all the press, the reviews, the things people are saying, uh, the, the political aspect of it. It's remarkable. And so the next screening is going to be in New York at the beginning of September. And so I go to New York. Um, I, I walk my first red carpet. Um, what was that like? Uh, it was pretty exciting. I mean, um, at that point in time, I had somebody from Fox that was assigned to me, and they walked me down, and I did a few interviews and took a few pictures, and then they brought me into um, the arena, I mean, into, into the theater, and sat me down in special reserved seats, and then said, uh, there's a cast gathering uh, right now, a little cocktail party in the green room, would you like to join us there? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> so now I walk into this little room where they've got a little bar set up, and it's the actors from the film, and the producers, there's like 25 people, 30 people in this room, and I get to be one of them. And Michael Fassbender comes over and says hello, and he says, it's, it's Really good to see you. Much, much better than in previous circumstances because our characters did not like each other. Okay. We, were, we were pushing each other away. <laughs> so we didn't really have much contact on the day we were shooting other than to just introduce each other and say hello. You know, I was, I thought his character was despicable. He was not appreciative of my character coming, taking his best slave away. But that's what we did on set. Here, it was now, ah, uh, we're all breathing. And people seem very happy and very excited with the prospect of what the season will be. So I'm sitting in the theater watching the movie and I tear up frequently during the film. I mean, every time I see it, I cry. Um, especially in that, that last scene, you know, where he's standing there before his family and apologizing for his appearance, uh, you know, after having been in prison basically as a slave for 12 years. Uh, it's heart wrenching and it's it's tender and it, it moves you to see to see the fact that they were able to be reunited. Now, when we shot that scene, the way it was written is I bring him into the house and I stand there and I'm standing there in the background of the scene. We shoot it five times while he's saying, um, you know, I apologize for my appearance and they're introducing the grandchild to him and it's so tender and I'm like, yeah, it doesn't. I don't feel like I should be in this scene anymore. You know, it's not about my character. Uh, and I'm tearing up while I'm watching them act because it's that moving and that powerful. Um, as I think my character would have teared up to see a family reunited. Um, and then the director said, yeah, I don't, I, th I don't think you're in the scene. I think this is just about the family. And I said, agreed, you know, and then that was that and I was gone from it. But sitting in the audience and hearing people's reaction at the end of the, uh, at the end of the film, um, was remarkable. Then there was a little Q&A afterwards, and then there was another little after party. And here I am, you know, in this after party talking to all the actors of the film, and I feel like I'm part of this, and I am part of it. I'm the guy who saves the slave. Right. So, so okay, so it's this great experience. It wins an Oscar. So now, as an actor, you know, you have to be starting to go into other projects 
must be tough. I, it, it would be like, you know, you leaving a, a, a World Series winner and getting traded to a last place team. Oh, Steve, I am a whore and I will do anything for money. <laughs> okay? It, it, it isn't hard. As a matter of fact, what's hard is <clears throat> the expectation that other people have, thinking that, um, wow, you just did 12 years a slave. You know, your agent's phone must be blowing up now. I'm like, well, you know, it doesn't, it isn't. Nobody cares. It, it really doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, it's great that it's on the resume. People will see it. They'll go, oh, yeah, that's good. Let's bring him in or not. But um, the, proce- the process of casting is so fast and so hard and so furious that sometimes people get inundated with five to 10,000 requests. So they may just click on a picture and not even look at a resume sometimes um, because they're trying to narrow it down to have just 100 people come in out of the 5,000 submitted. So it didn't matter what set I was on next, and it didn't matter what I was reading for next. I mean, I I don't want to read for horrible, terrible, schlocky things, but I'm not trying trying to build a career note. I'm just trying to work. And, And I think most actors are just trying to work as an actor. Yes, you want to do work that has integrity to it, but a lot of times... You don't have choices unless you're writing and unless you're producing your own material. It's very hard to sort of say, yes, I want to do this or no, I don't want to do that unless you're getting so much work that it doesn't matter. Now, you, most actors aren't. You were just in L.A. What was that for? <clears throat> well, I come back and forth to L.A. a lot. I mean, I lived in L.A. for 20 years, so I have a lot of friends and a lot of relationships there. I have a manager there and I have an agent there as well. And often I have relationships with casting directors, so I will come in and do auditions and read. But frankly, a lot of time it's just to be in L.A. and be with friends and to get out of the heat of New Orleans at times. Um, last time we were in because my girlfriend loves Harry Potter and they just opened that new Hogwarts world up in uh, Universal. And we spent the day at the um, at Universal and then uh, went to Vegas to see the Scorpions for a couple of days because they're all friends and you know, former clients. So uh, this was more of a relaxed trip. January, February, when I was out for almost two months, I was there for award season, award season where there's lots of parties. And, you know, I got invited to a lot of really cool things when 12 Years a Slave was up for the Oscar and the Golden Globe. I didn't go to the actual Oscars, but I got invited to a lot of great parties around all of that. And um, that was a lot of fun. And I, I, I kept a, a publicist, you know, for a few months of the year. Charles Sherman. Charles Sherman. Good guy. And, good guy. He always he was the guy. one person he would always come to the studio with his client just to make sure they got there. And I, I respected yeah. that. He's, he's very diligent and very hardworking. And, he's, and he's, even though he's like my age, he's very old school, which I really love. Um, and so I got to come back and go to parties last year and this year too and uh in some cases i'll do some interviews uh it's also the beginning of pilot season so i'll make my presence known for some of the casting directors that i know so it's always a little bit of work and a little bit of pleasure for me and and uh, i love it that way we're, we're running out of time i just got to ask you another thing uh what was what, how did you win that trip to new york <laughs> okay so my girlfriend submits a picture to an instagram um contest there is a Instagram woman who's in her 80s uh, named Batty Winkle, and she is um, loves co- loves going to concerts and festivals. And I believe her granddaughter would dress her up like a rock star or put makeup on her, and you know, 
parade her around and she would take pictures and she developed two million people uh, as followers and the liquor company who runs electric daisy carnival uh wanted to do a promotion and they were asking people to send in a picture of your baddie over 50 meaning somebody over 50 who was oh, kind man, of i'm 52 baddie. i wish i knew about it yeah exactly see <laughs> well she sent in a picture of, of me dressed as like some rock star making a weird face and she was in a crazy outfit it was actually our Purim costumes from this year. Okay. We were dressed, dressed up for Purim. And uh, we won a contest and, you know, wound up with a free trip into New York, three nights at uh, the Hilton in Times Square and a thousand bucks to spend. So thank you, Patty Winkle. See that, man? So uh, so what, what's coming up? What, what can we see you soon in? Well, um, this, uh, I guess, the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, I will be in Deepwater Horizon along with uh, our good friend James Dumont. Um, and that's a movie directed by Peter Berg, starring Kurt Russell and uh, Kate Hudson and Mark Wahlberg. And I'm actually in a scene with the three of them. And it's the first time Kurt and Kate have ever been in a scene together. Oh, that's cool. And as you know, Kurt was pretty much her surrogate father and helped raise her with Goldie. Um, and also um, a movie directed by Rob Reiner called LBJ, which is not the one that's on HBO now with Brian Cranston, but this one will be starring Woody Harrelson. That'd be good. And the one about with Cranston was very good. It was excellent. And, uh, it was really, really excellent. And so, well, good. So, uh, and then you're still getting out to L.A. And, and, and how do you think the Eagles are going to do this year? Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I hate to take a guess. I mean, look, I, I think everybody loved Chip Kelly for like five minutes. He was the best thing in the world. When that first half against the Washington Redskins two seasons ago uh, erupted into like a 600-yard offense. We were all blown away by the possibility of what could happen. We drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> we did. We did. And then we became incredibly angry by everything that went wrong last season. So much so that we were finally rewarded with a gift. Philly Eagles fans, Philly fans uh, are, are most happy to some degree when we're miserable. You know, And the more miserable we can be and the more angry we can be, the sort of more uh, full of life we feel. It's a very strange thing. It's hard to explain. Exactly. From outside of Philly. So it's going to be a weird year, I think. So the fact that he got fired on the second to last game of the, on the last game of the season was somehow that little gift for us that we went to go, yeah, you're gone and you're not. Exactly. We got to wrap. Now I got to ask you, give, give all your social media stuff and how people can check you out and go to IMDb. People, I said, go to IMDb, check out some of his film credits. He has 68 of them. Go check the show. But how can people get in touch with you? Um, you know, I'm on Facebook as Rob Steinberg. You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Steinberg Nola, N-O-L-A, and on Instagram at Robert Steinberg One. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for coming on, man. It was it was it was good to talk to me. Finally got this done. And so, uh, people, please follow him. Follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Instagram Cooper Talk One. Uh, my website is coopertalk.net. I have 518 episodes up there. You can also email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, where's with friends? Um, I love that game. It's Cooper Talk 1. Send me a request. I'll play you. I have a bunch of games going. And I have friends who won't even play. Like, they'll play me, then they won't contact me for like eight days. 
we play again. And also my other website, uh, StopTheSalt.com. It was four years ago when I had my heart problem and I got out of the hospital and I wrote the Low Sodium Cookbook. It's uh, StopTheSalt.com. The book Stop the Salt, Low Sodium Cooking for One Without Killing Yourself. 120 easy recipes, no pictures to intimidate you, no long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. You don't need cumin. No recipes I have have cumin, even though I do cook with cumin now. So sit there and get that book. You can get it at barnesandnoble.com or Amazon. But if you get it from me, I make more money. So please go check out Rob Steinberg's work. Follow him on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.